and I build Quipple for nine months in this vacuum, and within three minutes, an individual goes, so why doesn't it do X? And, and X was just this idea that was smart, and I never even thought of it. Hello, hello, Powder Keg fans. This is episode 80 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas outside of Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and today we're going to be talking about how you and your team can do better work with a guest who literally wrote the book on it. In this episode, you're going to learn some simple but profound ways that you can do better work. This is true for everyone, even if you don't lead a team or work in a professional setting. I mean, this stuff applies to your personal life as well. Our guest is a longtime friend of mine. We've got a ton of history. This is actually his third appearance on the podcast because he is one of the most listened to episodes. I guess I should say two of the most listened to episodes to date. Now he's going for the third one in his repertoire. This guy is currently helping more than 400 companies create smart, high-performing teams. He leads a high-performing team of his own and is now the author of the brand new book, Do Better Work. So let's kick things off with the Lessonly co-founder and CEO, Max Yoder. Max, thanks for being here. You bet, man. I was looking forward to this all day. Dude, me too. All week, actually. Yeah, no kidding. Not going to lie. No kidding. Um, yeah, we, uh, when you hit me up and said, let's talk about it, I was like, any excuse, man, let's do it. And then <laughs> well, we can and, hang out again any other time. And having the date has helped me prioritize actually reading through your book. Good. Enjoying the chapters, savoring them, and coming up with questions for you. So Good. I'm yeah. e- eager to dive in. Please. But I, I want to give a little bit of context for those that maybe aren't familiar with you. You know, you're our only person that we've had on the podcast this is your third appearance oh heck yeah thank you yeah so you're the only three pete we've that, got that right is now. awesome i um, appreciate that and for good reason uh your first two episodes were amazing some of our most downloaded episodes good people love you max good well i appreciate that and um you've got a really cool story and uh, you and i have known each other for over a decade now yeah well, man can you believe that no that's I, legit I, that makes me feel really old yeah. yeah i think i knew you actually in 2000 yeah, 2009, that's right. Yeah, it would have been you when you were recruiting. Yeah, but I knew you even when you were an intern at hmm. Studio Science right. at the been, time, KA plus A. Yeah, that would have been 2008. Yeah, so over a decade. Yeah. Well, uh, dude, I'm so excited, and I uh, would love to give a little context for those that don't know your whole backstory. Please. Um, you know, you are born and raised in Indiana? Yeah, Goshen, northern Indiana. Goshen, Indiana. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about what it was like in, in Goshen and... and uh, were you always an entrepreneurial kid? I don't believe so. Yeah. No, I, I found Goshen to be delightful. You know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and I really just appreciated what I did know about Goshen, you know, and, and <laughs> I didn't have much to compare it to. Sure. Um, did I you did, travel much? You know, I don't, I traveled with my mom. She was a travel agent for 20 years. Uh, so I traveled with her, but it was kind of like those destinations to, you know, beaches, which I'm you know, not complaining about. Sure. Uh, but she would, she, as a travel agent, she'd get to go on trips and sometimes she'd bring us with her. So I, I flew a lot more when I was younger and don't remember it. That's cool. Um, but yeah, it was kind of those exotic locations. It wasn't to like another potential place where you'd live, yeah. you know, like nobody thinks about living in, in San Juan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's not nobody thinks about it, but I wasn't thinking about it. It was, I didn't go travel to New York a lot yeah. when I was growing up. You know, it was really after college uh, that I traveled there. But I think the entrepreneurial bit, it's in the genes. My, my grandpa started a business, a funeral home that my dad and his brother still run today. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's really interesting. It's, it's not a, 
a business you hear about that much on podcasts. No, I'm happy to talk about it. But I, I imagine you learned some lessons. Oh my gosh, yeah. It was a. Uh, it was cool to see. I was always very proud growing up that my parent, that my you know dad owned a business with his brother. And I thought that was as really you cool. should be. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, and I think it's just a neat business because people are really kind of they have their own preconceptions of it straight out of the gate. You know, when you engage with a funeral director, it's because somebody you loved passed away. Yeah. And ideally, you have a really good experience then because it's a very important time to have a really good experience. Uh, but I just had a lot of pride in. It was having the inside scoop on what it's like to ha- what happens after death. You know, like my my dad made death very natural because we talked about it at the dinner table. You know, somebody wow. dying. Here's how they died. Death was just not something that was a faux pas. Yeah. Um. And I thought that was. I think that's very good for me. How so? I just. I, I, I got to imagine uh, it was one of the reasons that I really was excited about kind of grabbing life by the horns. It's just like, we're going to die. You know, and, I, <laughs> and, and there's nothing that scares me about that. I don't want to die soon. Right. Um, but this, the idea of everybody dies, some people die way sooner than they expect to. Um, and that is a motivating thing to have planted in your head when you're eight. It's almost like ingrained stoicism. You got to get it done, right? Yeah. Like, let's move. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, I'm at peace with death. I don't want to die right now. Um, but I'm at peace with death, uh, and I really like to just soak up life. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's a positive impact. Did you learn any direct entrepreneurial lessons or business lessons uh, just observing your your dad and your grandfather's business? Yeah, I think if I look back to see how they uh, manage customer service, you know, that's a place where you got to nail it. Yeah. Um, you're, you're dealing with folks in a very tough time, and it's uh, you got to show a lot of empathy, and you got to be very patient because uh, people have a lot more things to do when they're folks die, then make sure the funeral goes well. You know, there's just so much going on. Yeah. Uh, and I think to be able to see the posture with which my dad and his business uh, partners and, you know, teammates approached people, uh, was a very positive one. I think, you know, my dad always, he told me, I remember the day he told me we're driving away from the funeral home. Uh, and he told me that I asked him a question, like, what do you do if people aren't good actors? You know, I didn't use the word actors, but like, you know, if they're not, if that, they don't do the right things. And he said, well, most people do. Hmm. And that was very important to, for me to hear. Because yeah. if he would have said, well, you know, Max, here's how you protect yourself from everybody else, I might have had a different worldview. But he was like, you know, most people want to do right by one, by one another. Wow. And that was just a big deal to me. And I tell him, I've told him that, that I'm really glad he went that direction. You when know? you're like that impressionable yeah, as right, a kid. Yeah, right, right, that, right. That, that lodged in your psyche. Yeah, so the core of people is good. Yeah. You know, and, and, and to sit back in fear of when most people are good isn't probably healthy. Yeah. And if you would have said, hey, most people are bad, you got to protect yourself, that would have been a different thing. Yeah. Um, and I think he knows that because he experiences a lot of people, and he sees them at a very vulnerable point. Sure, sure. Wow. I didn't know that about you. Yeah, well, I'm glad we talked about it. Yeah, me too, man. Well, so... Uh, take me now fast forward to, you mentioned you, you traveled, you only really traveled to places like New York city and San Francisco, uh, after college. Right. Um, you had a very interesting college career in that you created your own major. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, that was a really just a great, great blessing. I was studying to be a communications major. Wasn't really confident that business was the right route for me because I didn't really know what it was. Like, I didn't know the underlying principles of business. If you would ask me about finance and accounting, I probably could have given you an idea of what accounting was, but finance, I thought I would have said it was accounting. You know, like, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> like uh, I, you know, my brother always said that um, 
a business person to somebody who walks around just talking on a cell phone with a briefcase. That's when we were growing up. And that was kind of as much as I knew about a business person, you know, okay. and my dad owned a business, but I was thinking kind of the wall street business person. Sure. Um, what you saw in the movies. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't go after business school. I didn't love, I like Excel wasn't my thing. And I, my friends were in that school or kind of doing things. I was like, that doesn't sound interesting to me at all. So I went communications. I wanted to study a, a people and how we interact. Mm-hmm. And I found out that I could create my own major through the individualized major program uh, that IU offers. I only knew one other student that actually did that program. Was it the magician? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I think you had told me that. He was the popular one. Yeah. I, 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 I got a lot of attention because he, he was a magic major. And sure. there was like one magic major in the country. Yeah. And I'm sure it was Harry Potter was happening and it was a big deal. You oh, know? yeah. Um, I never met him. He's I, a cool dude. Good, good. Yeah. yeah. I, I only heard good things. We didn't have a lot of uh, camaraderie because it was like everybody IMP was doing a different stuff sure. you didn't have advertising together. is a little different than magic right right yeah and I did advertising and brand management which is really the the title uh, uh, under the title there was upper level marketing classes yep um, which was super helpful but then a bunch of sociology psychology communications just a beautiful way to get a liberal arts degree that yeah. has a business sounding name um, so I was really fortunate that my telecom teacher Stephen Cronkey who became the, uh, the person who kind of shepherded me through the whole thing, who's my sponsor, said, you should go do that. Because I don't know if people will know that that's an option. No. And I, I, I want more people to know what the options are. Well, I'm glad we could talk about it here. Yeah, me too. Podcast. Me too. I hope that somebody's going to IU and thinking, oh, I should look into that because you should. Absolutely. You should. It, is, it stands out when you go and get to a job and somebody's like, well, well, tell me about this. And you're like, well, I created my own major. There's something that speaks to people. Um, that, uh, as far as I could tell, that was a p- positive. It was never a negative, you know, that somebody went out there and kind of crafted their own major. I kind of wish that was the default. And, and I don't know why it isn't. I mean, right. I think we just could live in a world where we've created some structures where it isn't. But, you know, if we started over, hey, create your own major out of the things that are happening across campus, you know, the things that appeal to you. Think about how many people are in, what, K201, and they're just wanting to bang their heads against, what was that, what was it called? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. There's a bu- bunch of them. Okay, sorry. <laughs> K201 was definitely a head against the wall. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and they're just like, wow. And, I'm, and they're not going to have to do that. Yeah. And you can have a partner at work who does that really well. Right. Like, it never hindered me that I didn't know precisely what to do with Excel because somebody around me did. And maybe that's because we forced people through the business schools. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, so maybe I'm talking in circles here. Uh but I think they try to trick it this well-rounded thing in business, and it's like, well, I can be well-rounded and just know a lot about people, and that can be a great business skill. Absolutely. Well, and it is a good business skill, and it's kind of uh, what you've turned into your superpower. People? As a CEO. Yeah, I think that's my job, is, yeah. is helping people flourish and thrive and understand themselves first and foremost. Self-awareness. You know, like, I didn't realize self-awareness could be shortcut, Um I thought you had to just go through life and kind of grow it real slowly but surely. But I've learned over time there are some tools that can help. There's some behaviors that can help. And if you know yourself, you will work on yourself. And I want people to know themselves. Well, and, and tell me a little bit about that as you find yourself in the business world and a first-time CEO uh, of a company of one. Yeah. With your startup Quipple. I remember the first time you pitched me the idea. Yeah. And you um, let me pitch it in front of people. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Um, and you got... Got great feedback. Um, I, re- I remember you gave an awesome pitch. Uh, I think somewhere on our blog, we still have a video of you and me sitting, oh, that would be sitting in my own duplex talking about Quipple. That would be really fun. Um, I'll see if I can dig that up. We'll put it in the yeah, show notes. Yeah, we had flip cams. We'll put it in the show notes. Yes, we did have yeah, flip cams. Yeah, you had flip cams. I totally yeah, flip had cams. flip cams. I thought those things were going to make it. Yep. Didn't see this iPhone thing coming. <laughs> Out of left field, Steve <laughs> no, Jobs. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the Quipple story that is in your book that I absolutely love 
you really kind of brought together with this sort of Venn diagram yeah. concept. Do you mind talking through that? Yeah, sure. So um, what I ultimately realized kind of looking back on Quipple was... Uh, you want to give us the 30-second the pitch on for, Quipple? For Quipple was? Yeah. yeah, surveying and polling software. So really it was uh, what we called it Quipple because it was quick polling. It was just kind of amalgamation of those two words. And the idea was let's embed polls into articles, into blog posts. If you're writing about something within that article, let's give somebody something to interact with to share their feedback on whatever the topic is. You know, do you like it? Do you not like it? Pretty, pretty just generic polls, but we wanted to make them look engaging and, and pretty and attractive because we kind of thought polls were relegated to sidebars. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. that was kind of my thinking, like they're on the sidebar, they're, they're not part of the content and a poll can give you insight, engagement and reach. Yeah. When you think about anybody who's publishing, they want all of those things all the time. They want to understand their audience better. They want their audience to interact with them. They want their audience to grow. So we put it all into one thing, but the monetization strategy wasn't there. And what I write about in the book was just how I designed and developed Quipple uh, in a vacuum. Uh, and didn't go out and speak to the ultimate people who I wanted to put it in their blog posts and articles. Uh, and, you know, we, we all know better than that now. I didn't know better than that then. Um, and I think there was some hubris. There was some I, th I know the answer uh, mentality. And I was going to go build this thing. And then people were going to go, wow, good job. And what ended up happening was I built it. And, it, and uh, on the launch day, three minutes after I sent an email, you know, a few hundred people would sign up kind of to get early notice. Somebody sends an email, and I build Quipple for nine months in this vacuum, and within three minutes, an individual goes, so why doesn't it do X? And, and X was just this idea that was smart, and I never even thought of it. <laughs> um, never even thought of it. It wasn't like I'd thrown it out and said, you know, I, I, here's why. It was like, oh, I've never even considered that, and it was a good idea. Um, and it was kind of a telling, because for the future of, of, of Quipple, uh, I was trying to make up for the fact that I'd stayed in that vacuum so long and spent all of my resources on developing the first version of the software when I should have built something a lot simpler, a lot uh, less kind of baked and gotten it out in people's hands to get feedback. So sharing before you're ready is like how to, which, 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 which is what I should have done is share before you're ready is, is, is how you make sure that what's getting done matches what's needed. Yep. I was getting stuff done, but it wasn't what was needed. Yep. Uh, and when you share before you're ready, you communicate early and often so that what you're getting done aligns with what's needed. And you do that by talking to your ultimate audience and saying, you know, what do you like about this? What isn't jiving so well? And what am I missing? You know, those are kind of the three big questions. Can, can you slow that down for me? Maybe Please. even break it down. Um, I, I love the concept of share before you're ready. Yeah. And you've been talking about that for a long time. Yeah. Um, I, I love the concept, but sometimes uh, taking it from concept to actual implementation yeah. is, the, is one of the more challenging pieces. Yep. Uh, how would you recommend sharing before you're ready if, if say, I'm tasked with a, a project? Yeah, what's, what's the project that you got tasked with? So let's say I'm tasked with a project of writing email copy to announce the new feature set for the powder cake platform. Beautiful, beautiful example. So the traditional way people would go about writing the email copy to announce the powder cake platform is they'd go, well, I was tasked with this. I was, I was given people put confidence in me to do this. Well, I'm going to go in a hole and come back and really wow them. Uh, and I'm going to start writing and I'm going to really, really stress over the writing. I'm going to edit. And then I'm going to come back and say, I got it. Here's the email I want to send. And that could be days. Uh, when I finally come back and say, I'm ready to share this with you. Sharing before you're ready would go in taking an hour to write that first draft and then going, is this directionally accurate? Like, what am I missing? Yeah. And, and, and if, if I gave you that assignment, you'd come to me and you'd say, is this directionally accurate? And I could say, that is totally in line with the direction I was hoping. Or I could say, hey, Matt, I'm hoping you maybe take it this direction. Or maybe the tone's off. Or, hey, don't forget to add these things. And then you go, okay, great. And you go back to work. And when you, get, when you feel pretty comfortable with your next draft, come back and say, 
driving. And at some point, I might go, Matt, you're nailing it. Go get it done. But you're just communicating along the way. It's all yep. it is. It's just communicating Checking along in. the way. Checking in. Yeah. It's informal check-ins. So uh, talk to me about you're a student of human behavior. Yeah, I, I love human behavior. Yeah. What is it about us that it, when, you, when you lay it out like that, that is clearly the practical and logical answer mm-hmm. is to share along the way, check in, mm-hmm. don't get too far down the path before you, you know you're going in the right direction. Yeah. That's obviously the logical reason. Yep. But we, as humans, in general, mm-hmm. act illogically. Yep. It, we want to go and make it perfect and, and share it. And have everybody go, wow, you're so brilliant. Exactly. What is it about human behavior that, that is the, uh, what's the word? It's the honeypot. I don't, what, what I think makes us do that, and I'm you know, not a psychologist, but the psychologists that I read, I hope, wouldn't, wouldn't, would say that I'm getting close. Um, so perfectionism is one big thing. You know, we're taught to be perfectionists. People put perfectionists on their resume like it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Perfectionists don't, don't tend to go very far. They don't tend to create much because they stay in that vacuum for a very long time. But we tend to prize this idea of, well, I make sure I really get it right, um, which kind of implies that you know what to do given enough time. And I don't think you or I know what to do given enough time. Well, we, when we know what to do when we share what we're doing with other folks. Uh, Jonathan Haidt would say, and he's a psychologist, a positive psychologist, he'd say, you and I individually aren't very smart. Uh, collectively, we can be very intelligent, especially if we don't have the same background, especially if we come at things from different angles. Collectively, we can be really intelligent. If we get a bunch of people who think the exact same way in a room, we, we don't get any smarter. But if we get bunch of people who have different angles, we, we get quite a bit smarter. Um, so I think we believe that we're supposed to have the answer and, and know the way and kind of dominate life. Uh, that anybody worth their, their weight uh, can, can know the answer, uh, have the answer, know the way, dominate life. Um, and that's kind of encapsulated in a phrase I say, leaders know the answer, I think is a myth that we believe. Yeah. If I'm a leader, I should know the answer. And I see it played out a lot, especially with first-time managers. And, and anybody can be a leader, don't get me wrong, but first-time managers tend to really take it very seriously and say, well, now I'm in this position, I better know what to do. Well, they don't know what to do because they've never done it before. And there's new problems all the dang, all the dang time. Uh, and Ben Battaglia was kind enough to go on the record telling this story, so I'll tell it again. He saw a discrepancy in our system um, and his default was the leaders know the answer approach well I should just fig- figure out what the hell's happening here in the system um, and he, and he, and he uh, kind of went in a corner tried to figure it out couldn't figure it out and two days later asked one other person Kyle another person Tamara have you noticed this and they immediately gave him really good ideas that you, you know 48 <laughs> hours had gone by before he got these good ideas because he stayed in this vacuum um, and they ultimately collectively figured out very quickly what was happening. But Ben, he's like, you know, my instinct, even, and he wrote, helped me write the book. It's not knowledge that we need to learn the answer isn't enough. We're just naturally going to have to kind of, uh, we have to put it into practice that we need to learn the answer. So leader, uh, and it's hard. And, you know, Ben helped me write the book and it's freaking hard. You know, he's not, we're not going to nail it every time. Um, so the alternative to leaders know the answers is leaders learn the answer. And when you flip that one word, the world changes. If I'm, if I'm learning the answer, I can ask you anything. So I, I how, hope you're nervous. How would you suggest to leaders uh, or anyone really yeah. wanting to do better work to catch themselves when they're going into this pattern of, okay, I just got to sign this task. I'm going to go start to work on it. How, how, how could we uh, empower our audience yeah. to say leaders understand that they need to learn. Yeah, they need to learn. So first and foremost, uh, if you are leading other folks, you do it and they'll do it. So if you want to impact the person who, uh, you know, maybe isn't confident, if you show them that that's the way to get things done, they will start getting things done that way. So it's incumbent on all of us to go out there and set up and be a model for this and make it safe. Uh, That's how we get our whole organization to do it. 
if you're if you're listening right now and you maybe don't work with other folks and or, or maybe you have some folks you could bounce ideas off of but you don't do it enough I, I would encourage you to say why am I not sharing before I'm ready right now and you say well it's not ready yet and that's precisely when you need to be sharing you know when you yeah. answer the question of well I'm not ready yet well that's precisely the time I, I, I give a, a, an example of think be more like a sculptor uh, in the book, a sculptor doesn't uh, doesn't wait till everything's been cast in bronze or sculpture's been cast in bronze to get feedback. That's too late. You yeah. know, it's in bronze. Uh, they wait when things are still in the clay stages and when they're wet, and 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 they're doing little uh, mini models and saying, "I'm going to make this bigger. Is it directionally accurate?" If you say, "Hey, Max, the eyes are off or the chin's off or whatever it is, the bust that I'm creating," you know, as a clay sculptor, um, I can do it pretty quickly. I can I can make moves, right? But if I wait till it's bronzed, nothing. I, it, it's it's exhausting to go back, and I'm probably not going to go back sure so think think more like a sculptor um and don't be shy you're it's, you're allowed to not know what to do you're not supposed to know what to do if we knew what to do we probably wouldn't have given it to you as a project uh, <laughs> we, it would probably just be done we don't know what to do uh so i hope that helps I, I i think it's ultimately just self-reflecting and saying why am i not doing it sure and it's probably because fear and ego well you, you say self-reflecting and um i imagine that's a lot of how you kind of learn these lessons because you you talk about quipple how you didn't share before you were ready yeah um, what kind of self-reflecting practice do you have where you're able to say, Hey, th why this didn't work is because of not sharing before I was ready. Yeah. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be uh, very, very excited and interested in writing. Uh, and it's not necessarily to publish though. Clearly I do appreciate publishing. Uh, uh, I just like to write and I like to process my own thoughts by writing. And I, and it occurred to me while writing the book that, we will write down our to-do lists because we're worried, you know, we won't remember what to do, but we won't write down our most in important thoughts. Mm. As though we can carry those up here, but we can't even manage our to-do list. Like, are, who are we fooling? We have to write our to-do list down, but we don't have to write our most important thoughts down? Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. It is. Uh, but I think most of us go through life keeping the most important stuff up here and putting our to-do list, like get bread, uh, you know, call Jess. It's like... That's pretty basic stuff, and I'm struggling <laughs> with it by putting it. You get the idea. Yeah. Uh, I want us more of us to write stuff down, and it's not about ever sharing it. Uh, it's just about getting it out of your head and being able to make sense of it. And I think when you sit back, I just get, I'm fortunate enough to be able to spend a lot of time uh, closing my eyes and just thinking, uh, and that's a beautiful thing, and saying, what would I have done differently there? But I think the main thing in any self-assessment is to look internal and not external. Uh, Connor gave me uh, the Jim Collins phrasing today is first look in the window and then look in, I'm sorry, first look in the mirror, then look in the window, like out that window. So first look inside yourself about what could I have done differently? Yeah. Because it's pretty easy, I think, for folks to just kind of make a quick checklist of all the things out the window that, that, that messed the whole thing up for them and not look internally and say, well, what could I have done different? Because I could have gotten up earlier. Could I have made three extra calls? You, yeah. you get the idea. Yeah, sure. That's where growth comes from. It's not the stuff out the window. It's like, what could I have done differently? Well, and you mentioned Connor. Uh, talk to me about who Connor is and, and what he means to you. Obviously, we all go back uh, yeah. to 10 years ago. Yeah, he's my best friend, and he's uh, a yin to my yang at Lesson Lee. I mean, the yin to my yang at Lesson Lee. Uh, he has so many strengths that I don't have, and I, I like to think you know the opposite is true. We just balance one another out really well. Yeah. Uh, he is an eternal optimist where I'm uh, maybe not so much. I can kind of get to a threat mindset. Or in any given day, he might be up and I might be down, and we— he helps me get there or vice versa. Um, but he, he oversees all revenue at Lesson Lee. Uh, first guy to, to, to join the team, uh, built uh, all, you know, I, I don't think we'd have, I don't think we'd have 110 teammates without Connor. I'm not sure we'd have 10 teammates without Connor. I'm not sure what <laughs> I'd be doing right now without Connor. So yeah, he's my business partner. He's a president at Lesson Lee. Yeah. So, so you, you talk about that yin to your yang. How important is that 
at work. Yeah, I'm convinced if anybody has ever done business well, um, even you know the folks who we think of them as singular figures, they always had somebody. They always had somebody. You know, I don't I don't know who Steve Jobs was. It might have been Tim Cooks. Uh, to kind of use a, a very obvious example, of somebody who we think of a singular figure. You have to have a balance. Yeah. You know, we just and and Connor's just such a great. I just I don't believe. Uh, that there is anybody out there who is making their way and uh, making a lot of progress without uh, that balance. Doesn't mean there's not an exception, I shouldn't say, but I think the rule is you need somebody to balance you out. And Connor is that, that person for me. Well, I think it's great to have that kind of perspective to sort of be aware of that. And being self-reflective, probably what you were doing in the early days of Lessonly, yeah. to be able to identify, hey, I need... I need someone yeah, to it, come be the yin to my yang or the yang to my yang. And yin. it started out simply of like, he knows sales and I don't. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, the first step into saying, well, oh man, he's all, and I, I was living with him. So Connor moves in, uh, got introduced by uh, Alex Lau, introduced us an old friend of mine and I'm very grateful he did. Um, Connor moves in, we get really kitted off and I'm just starting building lessonly and he is getting me pumped. He comes home and he's like, I could sell that. Like, this is really good. This could be sold right now. And I'm thinking it's not even close <laughs> to being able to be sold. And he's like, we, I could sell this right now. And he's coaching me on sales. And, and then I'm like, well, if there's anybody who's to bring in, it's this guy. And I begged him. Uh, it's not that he said, was saying no, but I was nervous he was going to say no. I just didn't have a lot of confidence. And I'm trying to give him every reason to say no so that if he comes in, uh, he doesn't find those things out after the fact and be like, why didn't you tell me? You know that we didn't have all this figured out. Interesting. That's was, a very different approach to sales. Yeah, I was trying to get him uh, to. I wanted to make sure if he said yes, he could never look at me because at that point I already loved the guy. Sure, he could never look at me and be like, "Why did I leave my job for this?" Yeah, you know, I wanted him to have clarity what he was getting into—the good, the bad, the ugly—and and there was not a lot of ugly. I think but that's pretty important whether you love the person or not. Sure, it's it is. You're totally right. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it, it gave me a more of a motivation to sure. be uh, like. I really want this person on the team and I don't want to let him down. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately, you know, Mitch and Corey, uh, who came after Connor, same, same, same spiel. Corey and I met like eight times before, over many months before he joined as, uh, as our customer ex experience leader. And he still has that today. Um, and then Connor knew Mitch, but we just really laid it out. Um, and then when he came in, I could be like, we're in this, you know, like we're in this together. He came in with his eyes wide open and that was really important to me. That's great. Well, and uh, there, there was one thing that you said that kind of sparked a thought. Uh, we were grabbing uh, drinks at uh, the Inferno Room a couple, mm -hmm. couple weekends yeah, ago. Yeah, that was fun. And you shared the, um, the quote from uh, Dr. Joe Bolte Taylor. Yeah. Uh, that there's sort of an uh, analogy as like a pipe. Yep. Um, and, and something you said about processing the yeah. day's most important thoughts. Do you mind sharing that in, in the way that you did? Because I, that stuck with me, but I, it, it didn't... Uh, I couldn't say it as eloquently as you. Sure, yeah. Well, I got to read it and reread it and reread it. So at, <laughs> at Yellow Ship, uh, which is our annual user conference, a lesson this annual user conference, Jill Bolte-Taylor is one of our speakers. She's a neuroanatomist. Really cool backstory. She wrote a book called My Stroke of Insight. I highly recommend picking it up. Became a New York Times bestseller. Amazing TED Talk. Oh my gosh, yeah. She's top 10 TEDx of all time. Yeah. Um, so she happens to be my, um, my, my mother-in-law's best friend. Awesome. Um, so that's how I got to know Jill. Got to go on a walk in the woods with her. Then got to, an, and that was amazing. Two hours. I would love to talk to you about it. She taught me about modeling. Wow. She taught me basically modeling is everything. Uh, you model it, people will do it. You don't model it, people won't do it. And it's kind of created my central thesis, which I uh, kind of for how, kind of how to live um, came from that walk in the woods with Jill Bolte Taylor. Well, another thing she did for me was gave me this analogy for processing emotions. She said, I view it like a pipe uh, and emotions like water running through a pipe. 
uh, if you process your emotions, the, they, they run through the pipe. If you don't process them, they build up in the pipe. And what ends up happening for a lot of folks who have never taught how to process their emotions, never given a kind of social and emotional learning uh, around how to process their emotions, uh, the pipe gets, so, gets full and it wants to burst. And when we're overwhelmed like that, either does burst and we have a big outburst, uh, and like we actually you know, act out. Or we try to, um, to kind of uh, quell the pipe from bursting by, by going to addictive behaviors. Uh, drugs, alcohol, retail therapy, anything that kind of makes the emotions feel like they're not there for a given time. Social media, TV. So, yeah, anything. Yes. Numbing. Anything that distracts, anything yeah. that numbs. And, you know, I know all too well about kind of digging into those things and kind of thinking that they're going to help and they don't help at all. You sure. Know? Um, so her analogy is water either flows through and you process the emotions or it builds up. Um, and for a lot of folks, it builds up. Uh, and because we've never been taught how to get it out, we tend to not be very good at getting it out or it seeps out of us. And I'll tell you at the end of writing the book, it started to seep out of me. I carried so much stress trying to get the book to work and I wanted the book so badly to be good. And I agonized over every sentence, you know, agonized over it that when it was done, um, I could feel my body pushing the stress out and I would just cry at random and arbitrary things, not arbitrary, but like even like slightly emotional things. I just start crying. Mm. I was on stage in front of the whole company at the state of the union, which is our biggest meeting. And I was up there for probably 30 seconds and, uh, I got to t- say, Hey, the book is coming out soon. And people cheered and I just, I just lost it. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it was just, I'm not laughing at you. <laughs> oh no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not your expense. No, I, please. I'm, I'm laughing because I, I know how deeply you feel things. Oh, I, just, I, I can just picture that. Oh, uh, it was, I was, I, just, I had chanting my wife in my head thinking, lock it up, lock it up. Cause that's what she says to me when it's like game time and she knows I'm emotional, like lock it up because you know, you have, you're speaking yeah. <laughs> and, and you're speaking and people are here to hear you speak, not cry. And she's not like, you know, suppress it, but she's like, you got to speak still. Um, Jess so, is awesome. So yeah, I was thinking about Jess at that time. Lock it up, lock it up. Um, anyhow, uh, I had let a lot of emotion build up in that pipe. And I don't think I processed it very well. Hmm. And it oozed out of me when it was done. It's like my body was physically pushing it out of me. How would you uh, recommend to a friend or to a teammate uh, some of the ways that you've found to successfully process emotions? Yeah, therapy, yeah. Uh, counselors, um, anything that, that is with a third party who has experience helping people process their thoughts. Uh, you know, and I say a third party because it's not that I wouldn't recommend a friend. Friends are great. Do it with a friend. Don't, don't say like, well, I got to find a third party if that's not available to you, but it's very helpful if it is available to you to find a third party who is trained and helps you kind of put, put into words what you're doing. You know, like whatever stories you're telling yourself, helping give you kind of context for, oh, this is not just you. Mm. That can be very helpful. Um, and then being able to talk through, you know, limiting beliefs, uh, talk through forgiveness, um, your dad is uh, somebody who specializes in this, and he has been very helpful to me. Uh, I have a consortium of folks around me who kind of fit that mold because yeah. uh, I need them. Uh, but I don't think I processed the book with anybody ever other than Jess. I, I, I was this was like the, one of the most important things that I have ever, but projects I've ever worked on. You know, lesson is the most important thing from a business standpoint I've ever worked on. This was like the most important single project, and I didn't handle it very well. Well, the work product is amazing. Yeah, it ended up fine. And congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I just think I'm, I'm not mad about how I handled it, but I'm sure I could have maybe caused a little less stress for myself and Jess. And the next book you write, I'm sure it'll be less stressful. Good learning. Yeah. Um, there was something you said I wanted to make sure we came back to, and that is this magical walk in the woods with mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe Bolte Taylor. Can, can you break that down for me? Like even just like take me there, right? Yeah. Set the immediate scene. Yeah. So I drive to Bloomington to meet her. 
and we have an hour and a half blocked off. We end up walking for two hours and she likes to walk and I love to walk. So we're walking and she's like, you know, how can I be helpful? You know, tell me about yourself. And I'm nervous. Is this your first conversation with yeah, her? Never spoken with her. Wow. I'm nervous. Wow. So I park my car. Um, I meet her at a kind of mutual meeting spot and she's like, I'll hop into your car. So she hops into my car and I'm kind of nervous. I'm like, oh my God, she's in my car. Because uh, she's in, highly intelligent and has a beautiful story and, you know, she's my, my mom, my mother-in-law's best friend. So yeah. I want to do this well. Sure. Um, but ultimately we just started talking very openly and about things I was struggling with. And at one point she said, well, uh, I, I needed my teammates to do a certain behavior. Like I want to have difficult conversations. She's like, Max, do you have difficult conversations? I'm like, yes, I do. She's like, do they know about them? So her whole idea was, it, you know, modeling has to be seen. Mm. Uh, uh, and I, you know, I was like, well, tell me more about this. And she's like, uh, she didn't describe it as a, as a, as a fountain, but I'd say that's not bad, uh, where something comes out the top and it, it tr goes all the way down. So yeah. if you are a moral leader on a team and you are in any way, uh, helping people behave or kind of setting a tempo or a tone for how people should behave. She's like, you have to do, um, you have to do the things you want other people to do. And ultimately what I realized is if you want to see it, be it. And in the first in the introduction of the book, I talk about if you want to see it, be it. And the whole idea is you're not going to make anybody do any, you can't make anybody do anything. I, we spend a lot of time complaining about somebody not doing something. And we ultimately should just look at ourselves and do, say, do I do that? Because ultimately that's the best we can ever do is do the things we want to see. Mm -hmm. um, and when we model the things we want to see, life really clarifies. So what we tend to do is we, we say, I want people to be to meetings on time, but if I'm not to a meeting on time, well, that's because I have a circumstance that, that, that makes it okay. Right. But nobody looks at your background circumstances. They just look at your behavior. Uh, and so you just have to do it. If you want other people to be at meetings on time, you've got to be at meetings on time. You know? And if you're not at meetings on time and you want other people to be, don't expect it to happen. You have to model the behavior that you want to see. And she just really uh, helped clarify that for me. And when I think about all the things I need people to do and I think, am I doing them? That is incredibly clarifying because I start to say, no, no, no. Well, why am I expecting anybody else to do it? So now I have to start doing them and I start to realize how hard they are. Yeah. Um, and I start to realize, uh, you know, I have a little more empathy for the ask. Uh, <laughs> but I also, when I start working on those things, just realize how hard of a thing it is to just even personally do the things that I expect other people to do. So now I empathize more when they don't do them. You know, I, I can, can be more compassionate, yeah. uh, but ultimately I can also model the behaviors I want people to do. And it's so amazing how well that works. Talk to me about that. When, when you, uh, got that paradigm shift of yeah. like, oh, I need to model all these behaviors too. Yep. I mean, did you end up with a big long list of new habits you needed to create? Oh my gosh. So many things that I wasn't doing that I want, needed other people to do. Like, you know, if I expect a teammate to respond to something in a timely manner, but I wasn't responding to other things in timely manners because, well, I get a lot of email, you know, right. that's my, that's my excuse. It's like, right. well, they don't care. Right. They don't know that. They just see what I do and they do what I do. And if I make it okay to kick the can on something or to not say, hey, message received, give me some time to follow up, but just leave a black hole. Like let's say you send me an email. Yep. Um, when I'm at my best, I say, hey, message received, give me some time. Yep. I acknowledge receipt. It doesn't mean I have to respond right away. You know, I don't I need to stop my life from my email. Uh, if, I wasn't, if I'm not doing that, why do I expect anybody else to? And the times that I don't do that, I know I'm not setting the example that I want with my teammates, which is don't leave people in the dark. You know, mm -hmm. they hit you a note, just let them know message received. That's, that's all I ask. When I do that well, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and I, my teammates can see it and then they start to do it too. When I don't do that well, the nice thing is I can apologize. Uh, and the cool thing about modeling is you either nail it or you get to apologize when you don't nail it. Either way, you're modeling the behavior you want to see. Because guess what? Your teammates aren't going to nail it either. And if you don't give them the ability to come and say, that's my bad, um, don't expect them to model or to, to kind of uh, – don't expect them to do it very long. They expect them to go in a corner and hide. Yeah. yeah? So, but if I can come out and say, 
the standard I hold myself to is this and I didn't, I didn't achieve it and I'm sorry. Well, then they can do that too. Right. So modeling just works across the board. So, so that's a great example on that one habit. Mm-hmm. What happens when you look in the mirror before you look out the window mm-hmm. and you see, oh wait, there are these 12 habits mm-hmm. that I need to do. Are, do you, did you go and attack all 12 of those at once? No, no, I don't think that's the wise call. <laughs> 1% at a time is the motto. You know, uh, focus on one thing 1% at a time with self-compassion. And I also write about that in the book. It's like 1% at a time. Uh, I think we think that awareness creates purchase. You know, like if you think about a marketing funnel, right? Awareness is the first step, and at the end, it's purchase. And I and, and instead of purchase, let's just call it behavior change. You know, like it's hab- a bit, ha- it's changed to a habit. Mm-hmm. I'm aware that I need to change something. All the way down the funnel to it becoming an actual habit of mine. It's a long way down the funnel. Um, awareness is just the first step, but I think we forget that we learn a new thing and we beat ourselves up the next day when we're not doing it. You know, oh, I was, I, I now know the, a better behavior, and look at me. It's 24 hours later, I'm already not doing that behavior. And we start to kick ourselves and beat ourselves up. And when I say 1% of the time with self-compassion, I mean when that happens, you have to remember your brain doesn't work awareness to purchase. Right. It's not, it doesn't just happen like that. It takes a long time, just like it takes a long time for somebody who's being marketed to to go from awareness to purchase. Yeah. Uh, our brains take a long time to build new habits. So 1% at a time, tr- do it more every day or every week or every month and forgive yourself along the way when you inevitably uh, fail. Yeah, in moments. Revert back to your old habits. Yeah, when you're, that's a better way to put it. When you revert back when to your When you inevitably habits. are human. Yes, you're a human. Yeah. yeah. And that's, a, that's a modeling, right? If I do that or I give myself a little self-compassion and don't expect perfection of myself, then I ideally relieve other people of that expectation. Yeah, that's great. And so you, you talk about making sure people can see that. Yeah. Uh, are there any things that you do to make sure, you know, maybe it's a habit you're working on at home with Jess yeah. and how you communicate with her yeah. and it's something you ask of your teammate team teammates to do yep uh how do you make them aware of that such a good question yeah so uh if it's something i'm working on at home uh i tend to speak kind of openly about it with the team um in in a way that i think is appropriate like we have team meetings with the sales development team every two weeks and people ask what's going on in your life and i'll say well here's something that i've challenged me uh and ideally you know what i tend to hear afterward like if i say hey i have a challenge with a family member and i don't give them details but somebody comes to me and say i'm having a challenge with a family member too after that you know like creates a vulnerable experience where they can relate to if i want to prop up a behavior that maybe it's happening at work. I don't want to prop myself up as the one who's doing it well. Mm-hmm. I don't want to shine a light on me. I, I just need to do it, but I don't, I don't necessarily go out there and then broadcast that I'm doing it. Sometimes in a weekly note, I'll share something that I've learned. Like I write a note to the team and, and a bunch of people who uh, uh, subscribe to it. Um, but generally, I'll try to find somebody on the team who does it well, and I'll prop that up. Yeah. Uh, you know, the behavior that I'm working on that I really aspire to, um, I'll prop them as, up as a model because simply by me celebrating it, yep. I'm doing a very similar thing to doing it. I need to also do it. And, you know, I'm doing it, but by celebrating somebody else, I can prop somebody else up who's a good example of it. I can say why it's so important that they do what they do and other people start taking notes. Well, and in a way too, by even just writing about it, they're modeling it for you. You bet. You bet. Yeah. I, I, I be, being able to tell their stories, being able to say them verbally or, or, or in writing, um, helps people understand what's, what I want from them, you know, what I desire from them behavior wise. Yeah. I wouldn't probably use behaviors if I didn't want them. Right. Right. I, I love that, Max. I, I think, uh, it's a really good way of thinking about it. And, uh, you gave me some ideas even just how to implement here at work. Yeah. I, I, talk, I think about Pete, the planner. He, uh, I think this was something that I had an awareness of, but Pete, the planner really crystallized it is you, you should never be the hero of your story. You know, don't be the, don't tell a story where you're the hero. Right. And, uh, that's just good advice. Yeah. yeah people don't tend to dig that. 
uh, and, and, like celebrate other folks. So I say like your influence in life boils down to what do you do and what do you celebrate? And celebration is an act of doing, but I call it out specifically as a separate thing because I can celebrate things that maybe I won't do. Uh, you know, somebody else is doing them, but I think it's really important that we do it. So if I see a politician that I think behaving very uh, very well, I should celebrate that politician. I might never be that politician who's doing that those things as a politician, but I should celebrate the people who are, who are doing the things that I want to see more of. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, so what do I do and what do I celebrate? I have control over what I do when I celebrate and my the wake I leave in the world, the influence I leave in the world boils down to those two things. What am I doing and what am I celebrating? And I think when we distill it down to that and we ask ourselves the question, what do I do and what do I celebrate? We can understand where we're influencing and where we're, where we're uh, making an impact on the world. And ideally we, we get a little more, we, we, we focus a little more on, uh, uh, on thinking about those two things as opposed to what anybody else is doing and celebrating. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. Focus on you. That's how you motivate and influence anyone is your own behavior not shaming somebody else's behavior. I love it. I wish more people had that perspective. Thanks, man. It took me a long time. Well, and so that brings me to my last question, which is what impact do you hope this book has on the world? Yeah, if I could boil it down, um, the reason I wrote the introduction the way that I did, so I wrote the introduction to say, um, if you want to see it, be it in 1% at a time with self-compassion, basically saying you're going to read this book and you're going to see these behaviors. And if you want anybody else in your team to do them, you have to do them because you can't make anybody do anything. And the reason I think that's so important is because I would speak about these behaviors that I know matter. They're, they're compassionate behaviors, they're thoughtful behaviors, they're uh, progress-inducing behaviors, they create clarity, they create camaraderie. I know that they matter. Uh, but what I, when I go out and talk about them, I inevitably get a question from somebody in the audience that says, well, what about my teammates? They're never gonna go for this. And that person basically summarily is like, I'm not even going to try because my teammates won't do it. Right. And that to me is just a losing bet. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you ultimately can still do and celebrate things. And you should, even if your teammates never, ever, ever change, you're still doing your job. Yeah. Uh, But I think we give ourselves an out by saying, well, nobody around me will do it. So why should I even try? And that bums me out. So what I want with this book is to remind folks that anybody on the team can make more progress. They just have to do these behaviors. And there's other behaviors that, of course, I, I don't even know about that help make camaraderie and clarity and progress. But the ones I wrote about, anybody can do. It's not a manager's job to create progress, clarity, and camaraderie. Anybody can do it. And if people don't respond, mm-hmm. at least you did your part. That's all we can do is our part. I love that. Thanks Max, for asking. I, I appreciate you uh, writing this book. I know it was not an easy task. Thanks, man. I know you, you put a lot into this. And uh, it was pretty fun. I, I just got to share the story uh, on the show that I wanted to do last minute prep uh, for today's interview. Yeah. And I left my book uh, at home on my bedstand because I was reading it last night. And I was like, man, I blocked an hour this afternoon. I wanted to read this book. Mm-hmm. I was commiserating with Sheehan on my team. And she's like, oh, I have my copy in my backpack. Uh, so it, it, it's getting out there, man. Oh, and it's so I, cool. I'm so excited uh, that my team is reading it. Me like, too. They're excited about it. Um, I definitely want to get a copy for everyone on the on the rest of the sure, team. Sure, I can help with that. Because everyone needs to do better work, uh, not for me or for powder cake, but for themselves. Yeah. It transcends the home. Yes. And I've not said that. All these behaviors, they're not just work behaviors. It's relationship behaviors. Uh, so thank you for saying that. Absolutely, man. It was what, a pleasure. If people want to uh, get a copy, where do they go? I'd love. I'd pre- thank you for asking. So you can just search "Do Better Work" on Amazon. If you want to check out the micro site that we made, kind of uh, that gives you more background, it's www.dobetter.work. So instead of .com, it's .work. Love uh, it. But yeah, just search "Do Better Work" on on Amazon. Uh, do Better Work with Max Yoder at the end of it. We'll give you there right away. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks for being here.
Hey, this is Matt here again. I just wanted to say thanks again for listening to this episode. I hope you walk away not only feeling inspired, but also armed with some new actionable things that you can bring back to your office, uh, bring to your most valuable relationships, and grow new valuable relationships. Make sure you give Max a follow. He's always sharing insightful stuff. He's on Twitter, at Max Yoder. I think he's the same on Instagram and all the platforms. Uh, so make sure you check him out. And definitely pick up a copy of the book, Do Better Work. You can find it on Amazon. Amazon, Audible, or by going to dobetter.work. Uh, and you can learn more about Max and Lessonly and the whole book project. And to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com slash iTunes. We'll catch you next time on Powder Keg Igniting Startups. Woo!